Hey everyone, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, a teaching edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Morris, and this is episode number 39 of our discussion about Bible interpretation. We've been comparing and contrasting dispensational theology and covenant theology as they are the two primary interpretive methods to understand the Bible. We spent some time last week talking about eschatology, and we surveyed the top views of the end times so that we could lay the groundwork for our discussion this week, which is on the Great Tribulation. The main passage in question when we think about the Great Tribulation is Matthew chapter 24, which is generally referred to as the Olivet Discourse. You can actually find this in all three of the gospel accounts, but this conversation will be focused on what we read in Matthew chapter 24. Today we're going to be covering what the Great Tribulation is in its immediate context and analyze how much of it should be understood in its immediate context and how much of it has a future aspect of Fulfillment. This is at the heart of the matter when it comes to a difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology's view of the end times. So I hope you're ready for what could be a pretty complex episode. But thanks for tuning in, and I hope that you'll be enlightened by this. But most importantly, as you listen to this, my recommendation would be to head over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 39, where you can see all the show notes and scripture references for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, last week, we talked about the um, tribulation and how the tribulation connects to eschatology as a, as a system and uh, as a, a category of doctrine. Remember that uh, eschatology as a, um, as a category in theology uh, has to do with the last things. And there's certainly some kind of uh, relationship between the last things and the tribulation when it comes to dispensational theology. Um, because when that tribulation happens, there is um, basically the introduction of everything that's at the very tail end of dispensational theology. Um, so the way that we're going to go this morning, as I had said last week, is... We did a, just a brief overview of the idea of tribulation in dispensational theology. And uh, good morning, y'all, by the way. And uh, how dispensational theology defines tribulation or the great tribulation as a um, particular event in history. Um, so this morning, now that we've gone through that last week, this morning we're going to take a look at uh, the most um, controversial passage in the entire New Testament, I would say. Um, and that is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's also where uh, most people kind of focus the most on the idea of a great tribulation. And that can be found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I mentioned this last week as well. So you see it in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The cool thing about this is when you read the Synoptic Gospels, first of all, one of the things that would be really helpful is if you have a Synoptic Gospel book. You can buy these pretty much anywhere. It's the same idea of 
if you buy a Bible that has like three translations and you can see them side by side. Well, if you buy a synoptic gospel, what it does is it categorizes all these accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, such as the feeding of the 5,000, things like that. And you can see them right beside each other. And the cool thing is these authors, while they don't contradict themselves, they're writing for different purposes and the themes of their gospels are slightly different. So they're going to include more or less information. And when you get to a controversial passage such as the Olivet Discourse, it it quickly becomes uh, necessary, I think, to take a look at all three of them. Because when you can piece together these uh, bits of information, it suddenly gives you great clarity on things that would otherwise be uh, very confusing. Um, But for the sake of this morning... We're going to be focusing on our time on Matthew 24. So you can turn there if you haven't already. So Matthew 24. And we will basically survey the whole chapter this morning. So I promised that we would get into this um, at the end of last week. And uh, we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to stay, for the most part, right here in Matthew 24. So, uh, while you're turning there, I think it's important to ask, what is the Great Tribulation in its immediate context? And the first thing we want to do when we think about that is uh, refresh ourselves with what Dallas Theological Seminary and their Statement of Faith have to say about the Great Tribulation because this is a dispensational theology doctrine. Um, at least at least their variety of it, I should say it that way. Um, so let me read that to you. I read it last week. I'll read it again this morning. And here's what they have to say. We believe that the translation of the church, and remember that means the rapture of the church, we believe that the translation of the church will be followed by the fulfillment of Israel's 70th week, which is from Daniel chapter 9 during which the church, the body of Christ, will be in heaven. The whole period of Israel's 70th week will be a time of judgment on the whole earth, at the end of which the times of the Gentiles will be brought to a close. The latter half of this period will be the time of Jacob's trouble, which our Lord called the Great Tribulation. And they cite Matthew 24 in that last phrase there. So, at this point... Dispensational theology is unique in that the way they understand the Great Tribulation is it concerns ethnic Israel. And that's a pretty big departure from the other classical views of the Great Tribulation, such as in premillennialism. In premillennialism, and these are the terms we talked about last week, if you weren't here last week, by the way, um, I would highly recommend just going to the church website and listening back to it. And I've, again, posted the outline and the recommended books and all that stuff. Uh, that'll be really helpful. We, we threw out a lot of terminology last week, but that was for uh, introduction to today. But anyways, in premillennialism, the Great Tribulation is seen as concerning the church. Now you'll notice this is basically the exact opposite here. Uh, what the Great Tribulation is in dispensational theology is anything but concerning the church because the whole reason that it happens is because the church is first raptured out of the way. So that's a, that's a huge difference there. Um, but historically speaking, 
the great tribulation was seen in two ways. First, a heightened moment at the end of history concerning something that the church is involved with and endures through, or the symbolic give and take of the Christian experience that doesn't necessarily happen a heightened, concentrated way at the end of history, but happens in phases in regions and areas throughout the world for the church from the first to second coming of Christ. Now, that view is more in line with the amillennial view. And then in postmillennialism, here's the last of the four eschatology systems we talked about. Postmillennialism, most of the time, considers the Great Tribulation, most of the time, not all the time, as having already happened and not necessarily something that we look to happen again in the future. So we have to ask a question. First of all, what is the Great Tribulation in its immediate context? So, in other words, Dallas Theological Seminary, in a dispensational theology statement of faith, identifies this tribulation, this Great Tribulation, as what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. So here we are in Matthew 24. And we want to take a look at this whole chapter. It's a fairly big chapter, 51 verses. Um, But what I would like to do is read it, and I want you to pay special attention to a few things. And if you have any modern-day Bible, it's going to divide this passage into subheadings. So, for example, I have an ESV Bible here. Um, You have 1 through 2. Identified as the destruction of the temple. You have 3 through 14 as the signs of the end of the age. 15 through 28, the abomination of desolation. 29 through 31, the coming of the Son of Man. 32 through 35, the lesson of the fig tree. And then the last section of the chapter, no one knows that day or hour. Now, your Bible translation may identify them differently. It doesn't necessarily matter how they're identified. The, the point is... Jesus is covering a lot of information here, and we want to pay special attention to these key terms um, that are identified throughout it. So here's a couple of questions we can ask right before we start reading. Um, first question, when we're thinking about the tribulation, first question, is there more than one coming of Christ? And we talked about this a while back um, in Reformed Theology. You have Christ returning again. We are looking for a second coming of Christ, right? Jesus came first to this earth and fulfilled uh, the redemptive plan of that perfect life, the death on the cross, burial and resurrection and ascension. And we're waiting for him to come again. Well, this is an important question because in some varieties... Uh, both in dispensational theology and other varieties, such as a term which we'll talk about in a minute. Preterism. Jesus' coming is seen in different ways. So in dispensationalism, Jesus is coming again a second time, but he's also coming again in an intermediate time, 
in a secret, invisible way for a rapture. In preterism, the argument is that Jesus is indeed returning, but his return is different in this passage than it is in the second coming. So we want to ask, is there more than one coming of Christ? And uh, what I want to do, if you had a pen, I'm going to give you a couple verses to look out for, especially here. So this question, is there more than one coming of Christ? Pay special attention, excuse me, to verses 27, 30, and 39. 27, 30, and 39. Second question we want to ask, is there a literal antichrist to appear before Christ's second coming? Verses you want to look at for that. 5... 11, 15, and 24. Third question we want to ask, did the tribulation occur in the year 70 A.D.? And for that, you want to look at verse 30. And then a question that we want to have in the back of our minds here, how has the church historically understood this contra-dispensationalism? So with those in mind, and if you want to get those, those will be on the website whenever I post this tomorrow. Um, so you can definitely refer back to, to that. That's really just for further reading and analysis. But anyways, um, we're thinking about Matthew 24. We want to read it and have those questions in mind. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this in one full sweep. Be thinking about those and consider especially... Um, who Jesus is talking to and what he's answering for them. So here we go. We're going to read all 51 verses. And uh, so don't ever say I've never stayed in one passage for too long because here we are. Uh, Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 24. Here we go. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there we are, all 51 verses of the chapter, and there's quite a bit happening in this chapter. So we want to ask now some more questions, having read the chapter. So the first question we want to ask, and this is basically what I'm doing, is just a brief survey of this chapter. 
um, to talk about more in-depth issues. Um, if you haven't already checked out, especially the, uh, the lectures by R.C. Sproul on uh, Ligonier of the Last Days According to Jesus, um, you can refer to that after this class, um, and that will be helpful. Um, but what we're doing is basically just concerning ourselves with the flow of the chapter in particular. Um, so the first question we want to ask, what is the occasion and the context of the Olivet Discourse? Well, there's a few things happening in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, first of all, the occasion for it is actually preceded by the chapter right before uh, chapter 23. Um, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, Jesus didn't just randomly throw out this nugget of prophecy to them when they least expected it. Because prior to this whole conversation, Jesus has just pronounced a, a sevenfold series of woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus, this is perhaps one of the most, like, uh, graphic language that you see by Jesus, not, not because it's inappropriate language, but because it's, it's a terrifying judgment pronounced against the leaders of the Jewish system and their hypocrisy. And in the ending of Jesus' woes pronounced against them is this phrase in uh, verse 36 of chapter 23, after this series of woes is pronounced against them, he says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And that phrase, this generation, is especially important in the Olivet Discourse because in the Olivet Discourse, which is chapter 24, Jesus says this in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, i.e., everything said in verses 1 through 33 of Matthew 24. Now, that's important when it comes to answering the question, what is concerning Jesus' day and age, and what is concerning something in the future? So, what I'm saying at this point is we are already given a context to understand the phrase, this generation. It doesn't just suddenly come up in Matthew 24. It's mentioned at the end of Jesus' woes against the Pharisees, which includes the temple in Matthew 23, verse 36. And then the other occasion follows right before, <clears throat> excuse me, follows right before the beginning of Matthew 24, which is that last little paragraph, if your Bible um, happens to divide it in this way. This last little paragraph of Matthew 23, 37 through 39. And here's what he says there. It's a lament over Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there again, we have a phrase that is introduced to us that relates to Matthew 24. So he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Well, that word desolate, desolation, is found in verse 15 of Matthew 24. 
Matthew 24, 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. So again, at this point, we have two key phrases in this whole controversy of Matthew 24. Remember, the issue at hand in every theological system is what in Matthew 24 is happening or has happened in Jesus' own day and what is a prediction of the far-off future. Now, you can see the tension here because in dispensational theology, everything in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 concerning this great tribulation is not happening until after the church is raptured. So, uh, could somebody just get me a napkin, please, so I can wipe this off? In that concept, the great tribulation is seen as entirely future. So, in thank you, appreciate it. In this whole argument, in this whole idea, you have a subcategory of these millennial positions. So those millennial positions being dispensationalism, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, you have another category which has to do with how we understand these particular passages in our hermeneutics. So in dispensationalism, you have a very very much concentrated futurist approach, which the name is kind of self-explanatory. What we're reading is happening in the future. That's kind of a given in dispensational theology. What Jesus is talking about here is a future event. Obviously a future event because it's going to happen after he says it's going to happen, but a future event in terms of this is at the, this is at the end of history. This is that last moment. This is that tribulation just before that millennium comes into place. There's also, the term that I already erased here, is, this is at the other end of the spectrum, and this is from a Latin word, and I don't really remember what the Latin word is in particular, but what we want to look at is this pre. So the word is preterist, but really what it means is it has already been fulfilled. And in this preterism, you have two subcategories. And this is not to get everybody frustrated at all these terminologies. This is just to show you words that we can use and substitute for what we're trying to say and convey. In preterism, you have full preterism and partial preterism. Now, what I want to do right off the bat, make this really easy, that is incompatible with historic Christianity because in full preterism, everything is seen as being fulfilled, even the final judgment and resurrection. Now, you can read these authors, and they have page after page after page showing you how this is the case, but historically speaking, there's no room for full preterism in Orthodox Christianity. So, what I'm going to also argue here is that Simply speaking, everyone is a partial preterist because if anything in the Bible has already happened, there's some kind of preterism happening. The question is not if it's happening, but how much. So the conversation becomes how much 
is in the future and how much has already happened. So with that in mind, let's continue on in our uh, analysis of this chapter. So we talked about the occasion. Jesus has just pronounced a woe against the apostate Jews and even against their temple as well. Um, In that lament over Jerusalem, Luke's gospel, you don't have to turn here, but Luke's gospel in Luke 19.41 gives even more detail as to this weeping and lament over Jerusalem. Here's how Luke says it. So Jesus in Matthew, he cries and weeps over Jerusalem that they're about to be made desolate. Well, in Luke's gospel, more detail is given, especially in verse 43. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So there, there's certainly a military destructive aspect to whatever Jesus is about to talk about in Matthew 24. Namely, that what he is talking about in terms of desolation has to do with the temple. Not one stone will be left upon another. So the question and context, first of all, is focused in on this idea about the temple. In Matthew 24, 1 through 2, the disciples point out how immaculate and how basically a modern marvel the temple was and Jesus says you see it not one stone will be left upon another and this was virtually an unfathomable idea to the disciples because these temple stones were massive stones I mean pretty much just a a rough calculation if you looked at this back wall here Uh, The estimate is that these temple stones are basically the size of this whole wall. So it was this huge, huge reality to say that not one stone is going to be left. I mean, you're talking about a a massive building that took up one-sixth of the entire city. So we're not talking about you have Hilliard now. Obviously, Jerusalem isn't as big as Hilliard, but just imagine. You have Hilliard, and you have the building for Grace Covenant. We're not talking about a temple and then the whole rest of the city. We're talking about... A complex in Jerusalem where the temple makes up one-sixth of the whole city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, yeah, there's not even going to be one stone left. Now, this was a remarkable thing to say. And no wonder the disciples follow up by saying, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, in other words... Is Jesus, there's our second question here, moving on to the second passage here. Is Jesus asked to answer a cosmic event? In other words, is Jesus answering a question about a very bad time in history, or is he answering a question of cosmic proportions? In other words, we can put it this way in modern language, is Jesus talking about the end of the world? That's really the best way to put it. Is that what he is answering? Now, this is where the, everybody goes their separate ways, basically, in the different systems. Because when you start getting into this idea, dispensationalism automatically substitutes in a futurist approach. In other words, when Jesus starts talking, we're talking about end-of-the-world stuff here. 
We're talking about a great tribulation at the end, after the rapture of the church. We're talking about something that's happening at the tail end of history. The preterist will say basically the opposite. What Jesus is talking about here concerns the immediate context that he's in, the people he's having the conversation with. And so anything that he's about to say without great cause for us to think otherwise must be taking place in that time. In other words, what he's about to say has already happened. So is Jesus asked to answer a cosmic event? If you read John Calvin's commentary, for example, on uh, Matthew 24, um, he is of the persuasion that when the disciples say, when will these things be? There's their first question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Pretty much what is happening, this is the way that he explains it. What's happening is the disciples saw the destruction of Jerusalem as such an unfathomable reality that it must be an end of the world event. So certainly they didn't think end of the world is in the year 2019 or later. But they thought we, we must be dawning the end of the world right now because for the temple to be destroyed, this new temple to be destroyed <clears throat> must mean the world is coming to an end. So that, that's his argument. And I think that there is some merit to that because when you do read the uh, synoptic accounts, not all of them describe what is about to happen as the sign of your coming. And that's that key phrase that, that is really important in that initial question we asked, is there more than one coming of Christ? What coming are we talking about? What coming are the disciples asking about? So that's Calvin's idea is that what Jesus is about to answer doesn't necessarily speak of the end of the world as we know it, but the disciples automatically assume to have one is to have the other. If Jerusalem's being destroyed, we must be talking about the end of the world. And however much that is true or not remains to be seen. So in that concept, it's also inter- interesting to note, first of all, we should ask the question, who? Who is Jesus talking to? Who is he giving answers to? Well, it is Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And Mark, for example, will tell us that those are the particular disciples that came to him and asked him this question. So you have Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who Jesus is talking to here. Now, it is interesting at this point to have that in mind because if dispensationalism is right, that all of this is future, and at this point, at least 2,019 years after these, well, really, if it's 80, 30, so subtract 30 years or so from that, but still, roughly 2,000 years after this conversation takes place, at least in dispensational theology, in my opinion, it would be irrelevant at best for anything Jesus is about to say to these four people. In other words, if Jesus is talking about entirely future events at the end of the world, then what he is saying to the disciples here has absolutely no relevancy whatsoever, at best. And we'll see the reason for that in this next passage. Because in the rest of verses 3 all the way through the end, Jesus has a pronoun used 
again and again and again and again. Does anybody know what it is? You. Everything Jesus is saying is to these four disciples. Peter, James, John, Andrew. Why in the world would he keep saying, see that no one leads you astray. You will hear rumors and wars. You will see the abomination of desolation. You, 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 over and over again. And yet be talking about events at least after the year 2019. Makes absolutely no sense from a contextual analysis. Why would Jesus even say that? Because Jesus is perfectly comfortable with saying they. But he says you, 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 you. So at this point, we should at least consider that an entirely futurist approach to this passage just doesn't make sense in the context of it. So another question to ask in that, or a way to ask that question is really who is the audience that Jesus answers, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and situates within this prophecy. So it's one thing to answer them. It's another thing to situate them in these fulfillments the way that he does in that you association. So it's interesting also because in dispensational theology, that idea at verse 15, so we're now looking at 15 through 28, this abomination of desolation in dispensational theology is seen as the Antichrist. So we'll, we'll have a whole other discussion about the Antichrist, but it's important to say at this point in dispensational theology, this passage, verse 15, is talking about the Antichrist entering into the temple, has a covenant made with the Jews, breaks the covenant, enforces great tribulation and hostility towards them. That's in the dispensational scheme. But if that is true... Again, we should ask, why does Jesus say, when you see the abomination of desolation? And again, who is he talking to? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who certainly aren't alive in the year 2019, at least here on the earth. Why does he say, when you will see, if it is a future fulfillment? Now, what I'm not doing here is saying there's no such thing as antichrist. Let's move on from that. There's other passages we can go to to talk about that. But we're talking about Matthew 24 in particular because dispensationalism sees Matthew 24 as a direct concept of the great tribulation and antichrist. What we're asking at this point is, is there a contextual basis for that? So there's that question Who's the audience? And Jesus over and over again says you. So in this passage, Jesus also gives us a helpful key to understanding all this. In that same verse, what is this abomination of desolation? Well, he says that whatever that is was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And in that passage of desolation, we've actually already covered this. It goes back to Daniel 9.27, this desolation coming upon Jerusalem. In dispensational theology, this desolation talked about is at the end of the world when Jerusalem is reinstated as a nation. Way back when, they used to say that that happened in 1948 when Jerusalem became a nation. But the whole generation concept causes some some doubt there, uh, which we'll get into in a minute. 
But anyways, they saw that this was happening in the far off future. Whenever Jerusalem becomes a nation again, then there's going to be this rapture of the church. Then this tribulation is going to happen. When this tribulation happens, then you have the fulfillment of Daniel 27, Daniel 9:27, in terms of an antichrist coming upon the scene. But again, Jesus says that whatever it was spoken of by Daniel is going to be an abomination that they see. The people he's talking to, his contemporaries, the generation of his time. And when we look at uh, these synoptic accounts, and uh, again, you don't have to turn here, but it's important at this point uh, just to make mention of how you see a variety here. So in Matthew, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, you have Mark 13, which says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So you have a personal pronoun here used. And then in Luke 21, here's how Jesus describes this desolation. He says, but when you see Jerusalem... Surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And that's Luke 21 20. So we take all those together. We're talking about, according to Matthew, something fulfilled of what Daniel spoke about in Mark. Somebody in particular, a person, and then in Luke, a military event, Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So you see how we just took all three of those and brought them together to come to a conclusion and that's what i would certainly uh, encourage um hopefully when you leave out of here today um because we're not we're certainly not answering every question of this chapter but hopefully if you go and read and study uh, this coming week you'll do that and if you don't want to buy a synop- uh, synoptic bible by the way um, i'm sure you can go online and you can find uh, matthew mark and luke and you can just read them for free um, i would highly highly recommend that um so now we are moving, um, at least in, in a little bit uh, here, to verse 29. Actually, I'm sorry. Let, let's not do that yet. 21. So verse 21 is one of the most difficult issues here in this whole chapter. Because here's what Jesus says. For then, so these details here about this abomination and the things that ensue. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So, Jesus certainly categorizes whatever it is that he's talking about in this great tribulation as the worst there ever has been and the worst there ever will be. Because what is happening has to do with an utter demise of Jerusalem and the temple. Which, by the way, now 2,000 years after the fact, there still is no temple. It is utterly destructed. Everybody has been dispersed from the scene. And it is utter chaos in that region because there's there's no there's no central presence so to say because again remember the temple in the old testament was where god dwelt with his people 
you have no more temple still to this day, which causes great suspicion with the sacrificial system that they would need to have in place and all those other issues. In dispensational theology, the idea is that there's going to be a new temple built. And the new temple is not this heavenly or spiritual temple, which we're spoken of in the New Testament as being the temple of God now. He dwells with us person to person. And it is going to be a physical temple rebuilt in the millennium when Jesus returns and animal sacrifices are going to return as well. (laughs) There's a problem with that. There's a huge problem with that. Now, they would certainly not say that these are for the forgiveness of sins. Basically, the way that they would... Uh, the way that they would explain this is that these are basically thanksgiving offerings. So it's kind of like these are our response offerings to what Jesus has done. But again, when we've looked at to this in covenant theology of types and shadows being fulfilled in the substance of Christ, we've basically rewound the redemptive clock and gone back to types and shadows. And that's just a, a light way to put it. We can talk about blasphemy and all those things, too. Because it is to downgrade and downplay what Christ has done as the fulfillment of those things. And there certainly is a testimony to that even when Jesus dies on the cross because that veil was torn in the temple. So that was, first of all, a symbolic way of saying that this was passing away. And then in the next 40 years from roughly AD 30 to the year AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, there is no more temple. So we have to ask the question, was that a final judgment against the old system and the rejection of Jesus as the fulfillment? Or is there going to be this new one come into play later on down the road? Well, an issue with this whole idea, let me read this to you from the Gospel of John. Because this whole idea of the temple being destructed and all those things really plays into the controversy of Jesus' life because this is what happened after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In the Roman Empire, the Jews really had their own little colony, their own little world almost because interfere with the affairs of the Roman Empire. They were basically able to just stick to themselves. They had their own laws. They had their own way of life. They had their own God And they were able to just keep to their own. But whenever Jesus got more and more attention, they they began to get very nervous. Because once these claims of king and Messiah came up, it was seen as an absolute disgrace towards Caesar. And remember, when Jesus is arrested, that's kind of the thing that, that the Jews kind of throw out there to kind of cause a stir with, the, with Pilate and others because they're saying, uh, he said he was a king. He said that he's greater than Caesar. And here's what happens right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now listen to this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now listen to this. For if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, 
Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Now, this is, in my opinion, the most ironic passage in the entire Bible. Because if you listen closely, they said, we have got to get Jesus out of the way. Because if we don't, the Romans are going to come in and destroy our nation and our temple. The irony of that is what we're reading in Matthew 24 is that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, but it was because they killed Jesus to move him out of the way. Now, they were moving Jesus out of the way because they wanted to keep what they had. And what Jesus is saying, that judgment is coming upon them for the very thing that they did, is the greatest irony, in my opinion, in the entire New Testament because... The one thing they were trying to keep from happening happened because what they did to try to keep it from happening. So it is 1025 if my watch is right, and I don't want to fly through this. I'm certainly comfortable with us picking up next week where we are. Um, But at this point, we have just very, very briefly touched on the fact that whatever Jesus is talking about to this point carries a contemporary context to it. Now, we still haven't answered the question of whether it is entirely contemporary, but we at least have identified that there's no possible way it can be entirely future beyond his own generation. Because, number one, it would make no sense for him to say, you, 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 you. And number two, because whatever he was talking about with the temple does not concern a future temple, but the very temple they were laying their eyes on. You see this temple right here, it will be thrown down entirely. So there is a historical element to this passage of what's happening. And Jesus calls that in verse 21, the great tribulation. So the question that we'll hopefully see uh, next week when we pick this up is, is the great tribulation in Jesus' own day, or is it in the future? So we have five minutes. Um, does anybody have any questions up to this point? Yes, go ahead. You have now picked up on the most difficult part of this whole chapter. So, well, let me, let me just throw this out there. Okay, what, what I'm going to contend for And this is certainly um, not the case all across the board. The question there, just like you had uh, alluded to, at what point do we get to Jesus' second coming in this passage? At what point are we talking about things happening in his own day? That's a really uh, crucial part of this because in verse 34, just as she said, Jesus says, Truly I say to you that this generation which we've already identified, speaks of his generation, which is 40 years, by the way. You see that all all the way back to the Old Testament. Israel wandered in the the wilderness for 40 years because God was angry with that generation. So, and that's just one example, but generation meaning 40 years. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, 40 years after that time. This was roughly in AD 30. So within that generation, this destruction did. He says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that's difficult because in verses 29 through 31, you have something that certainly sounds like Jesus' second coming. Now what R.C. Sproul and some of these others argue is that that language is apocalyptic language 
of national judgment. In other words, even verses 29 through 31 speak of this destruction against Jerusalem, not Jesus' second coming. Now, now that is difficult, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not convinced one way or another, but this is not the first passage that speaks of the sun being darkened along with the moon and the stars. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, this was prophetic language of destruction and judgment against a nation. So the sun, moon, and stars being said to have been darkened is a way of saying God removing his countenance from that nation. Now you see this in Isaiah 13. You see it in Ezekiel 32. You see it in the Old Testament describing nations that have already been judged, for example, Babylon and Egypt. And the same language is mentioned of the sun, moon, and stars being darkened. So what R.C. Sproul and others will argue is that Jesus, because he has taken the office of prophet here in this passage. Remember, this this is a prophetic prediction. This is the most um, absurd prediction these people have ever heard because you're talking about the destruction of this massive temple. And Jesus is utilizing the same language used in the Old Testament as God's judgment against the nation, yet this time it's against Jerusalem itself. So what they're saying is that Jesus is talking about the judgment against Jerusalem using symbolic language of sun, moon, and stars. Now that exegetically is not out of bounds because you see that in the Old Testament. And the only way to comprehend how it could be said of nations such as Babylon and Egypt that the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. Certainly they weren't, they weren't darkened and fallen and don't operate anymore because if that were the case, the world would cease to be as we know it because that's what we need um, for this world to continue on. We need the sun, moon, and the stars. So the question is, are we talking about symbolic language or literal language? Now, if we go back a few weeks ago, that is one of the most crucial elements of dispensational theology literal interpretation of scripture regardless of genre so they would read that and say sun moon and stars must literally be talking about sun moon and stars therefore we're talking about the end of the world so you raise you raise a really important question which which we will get to in more detail um, next week but at this point i will say throw my cards on the table I'm sure that at verse 36, we're starting to talk about Jesus' second coming. But what I'm not sure about, and what I'm suspect, at least at this point, is that the second coming of Christ begins to be spoken of in verse 29. So, my position is probably in this passage. Let me see where I put that marker. I would do a, this is just a very rough mathematical guess here. I would say we're talking about in this passage three quarters having already been fulfilled and one quarter yet to be fulfilled in the future. Now, I certainly am open to disagreement there because, honestly, even in Reformed theology, that is the most difficult debate in this whole passage. If Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place that he's spoken of to this point, either he was wrong, generation doesn't mean generation, or we have to figure out what the language and symbolism in verse 29 through 31 mean. 
So we will leave it at that. Does anybody else have any other questions? But that's going to be basically the, the center of our discussion next week because that, that is a really important point. Does anybody have any other questions? Okay. Let me pray. Thank you for your patience. I know we're kind of flying through this, but um, please take advantage of uh, some of those resources that I mentioned. We're talking about people who are one million times better at articulating this than I am, and they really have helped me wrestle through a lot of this. Um, Just to throw this out here, this is another book um, that is really helpful. Last week I mentioned it, but I didn't have it in hand. I actually bought it because this is probably one of the most helpful reads. Uh, But... Kim Ruhlbarger, he, back in the day, was a dispensationalist and is now a convinced amillennialist and a Reformed pastor and professor. And so he does an excellent job in this book of wrestling through dispensational and Reformed theology issues, which is really what this class is, covenant theology and dispensational theology. Um, So you you can find that online on Amazon or wherever, and it's uh, A Case for Amillennialism. I'll be glad to let you borrow it, but i got to finish reading it first, and then you can borrow it. But uh, if you don't want to buy it, just come see me in a couple weeks, and I'll give it to you to to read. Uh, But let me pray, okay? Well, thanks for listening to that episode. One of the things that we can take away from this study is the fact that there is a lot to sort through. And regardless of what interpretation method we see as the most faithful to what the Bible teaches, one thing that we must do is to treat one another with love and to take seriously the positions that people have on certain aspects of the Bible, which in this case includes the highly debated topic of the Great Tribulation. Because there's a lot to sort through, there's a lot to figure out, and there are complexities to be sure. So we'll cover this in more detail in our next episode. We'll have a part two to this study of the Great Tribulation. But all this to say, one of the things that we should do as we leave this episode is to pick up our Bibles and do a faithful job of reading it. We want to understand that people who have any of these views are trying to sort through a lot of scripture and are working off the principle that God doesn't lie and he doesn't contradict himself. So there has to be a way to take what might seem unclear to us in various passages and books of the Bible and see how they have a unified, consistent meaning. That's the goal of all interpreters of the Bible, and it's our goal together. And I look forward to doing that with you again in our next episode.